Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted uh, to talk to uh, Sheikha Fatimi Bakatula. You are most welcome. Assalamu uh, alaikum, Brother Paul. Assalamu alaikum to you. Um, Sheikh uh, Fatima is an award-winning uh, British Islamic scholar, author, and presenter of the Ilmfeed podcast. She recently completed her Master's in Islamic Law at SOAS, that's the School of Oriental and African Studies, at the University of London, winning the Doreen Hinchcliffe Memorial Prize for Best Student in Islamic Law. Uh, Sheikha Fatima has had a rich Islamic education from an early age, thanks to her parents, she studied Arabic and Islamic studies in Egypt at prominent institutions such as uh, Al-Fajr Center in the Cordoba Institute and at a college of Al-Azhar University. She graduated from the Al-Salam's Institute of Advanced License in Islamic Scholarship and from the Alimiyah program at the Ibrahim College Seminary with a specialization in fiqh, that's Islamic law. She is currently working on the books Womanhood in the Quran and Aisha, Scholar of Islam, having authored her groundbreaking first book, Khadija, Islam's First Lady. Uh, she's a key contributor to the discourse surrounding Muslim women in the West, contributing to the Westminster faith debates, documentaries and live shows for BBC Radio 4, the World Service, as well as BBC Television, Channel 4, and is a regular contributor to Islam Channel and Imam Channel. Um, she is the director of Seeds of Change, the biggest um, Muslim women's conference in Europe, and was a Dawa trainer for our era, that's the uh, Islamic Education and Research Academy. And in 2014, she was awarded the Icon Iqwa uh, International Award for Young Women in Dawa and Community Service at a ceremony in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And uh, Sheikh Fatima is a mother of four and lives in London in the UK. Now, today, um, in a two-part discussion, uh, Sheikha Fatima will discuss the main things that are attracting women to Islam. Contrary to the stereotype uh, in the West, Islam is proving incredibly attractive to many women. And in fact, most converts to Islam are female. And secondly, um, she will uh, discuss a very, very important subject. What is happening to the marriages of British female converts to Islam uh, who make their shahada while still married to non-Muslim men? Very uh, significant important where, where you've done some groundbreaking award-winning uh, uh, research on, into that particular subject. So, uh, sister, over to you. Jazakallah khairan. Bismillah. Alhamdulillah. Wa salatu wa salam ala rasulillah. First of all, uh, Brother Paul, I just want to thank you for this opportunity. And alhamdulillah, we met in Andalusia of all places, didn't we? Of all places. We did. It's amazing. Yeah, pro probably quite a symbolic place for us to have met. Um, and so today, yes, um, I'm going to be sharing with you. This is actually the first time I'm sharing this research properly in this way. Um, some of the research I did uh, during my master's uh, in Islamic law. Now, when we begin, I, I want to say that, look, I was actually looking into a very niche area, if you like, of Islamic law, you know, what was happening to female converts who 
are married to a non-Muslim at the time that they take the shahada? You know, what was happening in the UK? What support were they being given? Did they end up staying with their husbands, etc.? But almost as a byproduct of that research, because I was interviewing so many women and, um, you know, conducting questionnaires, etc., uh, and reading a lot of the literature that already exists about female conversion, um, I started to put together and or see some patterns, you know, regarding the major themes or the major things that were attracting women to Islam because they kept repeating them, they kept mentioning these things, right? And of course, as a da'i or anyone who's involved in da'wah is going to find this really interesting. It's golden information, isn't it, mm, for mm. us? Because um, Sometimes we assume that a particular thing is more important than another when we're trying to share Islam with others. So let me share with you the some of the findings that I had. I think uh, one of the things that everyone should know is that actually, and we've heard this, haven't we, this idea that more women convert to Islam than men, but uh, it's actually true. You know, when you look into the uh, research that's been done, Actually, in the UK, female conversion to Islam is double male conversion. Wow. And in the USA, four times as many female converts, uh, you know, are, people are entering Islam than men, right? Mm. So, subhanAllah, like that or automatically that should kind of pique our interest, right? That should make us think, well, wow, you know, the whole narrative around Islam is that Islam oppresses women. Like that's almost like a given that's um, a, tr a trope that's repeated in the media, the, the impression that's given whenever a Muslim country's kind of profiled, you know, uh, it's the pretext for people going to war with Muslim countries, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that we need to free the women. Um, so when we see this um, statistic, I think it should really make us it should make non-Muslims ask, actually, you know, like, what's going on? Like, this religion that's supposed to be, like, the worst religion for mm -hmm. women, right, um, is attracting more women than it's attracting men. It's supposed to be patriarchal, apparently, so, which means that it apparently is supposed to be, you know, more uh, aligned with... Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Desires of men, in some way, uh, but women are being attracted to it. I think um, Sinead O'Connor, in one of her interviews, she said it beautifully. She said she left Islam till last, you know, uh, as, as, the, as the religion that she would look into because, yeah. because of the negative narratives surrounding it. So Interesting. And yet she, of course, embraced Islam. Mashallah. Yes. So what's attracting women? I think the, the number one theme that kept coming up in my interviews was, of course, and I think we would have kind of accept, expected this, uh, Tawheed, so Islamic monotheism, the oneness of Allah, and the entire Islamic worldview. So things like the various Islamic doctrines, when people would find out, when women would find out about them, mm. they would actually make sense to them. Uh, especially, I think, m many of my interviews were Christians. Right. Or, sorry, had been Christians from a Christian background. <clears throat> and they really found, the, obviously, the Islamic teachings regarding the place of Isa, alayhi salam, Jesus, and... Uh, the pure monotheism, very appealing. And mm. also with Catholics, I found um, having a direct relationship with God, right. you know, not having a middleman, that was very appealing to them. Or, or, fact, or middle woman, because obviously Mary plays a very central role in uh, Catholic spirituality and theology. So, yeah. Yeah, right. So not having any kind of intermediary. Yeah. That was important. In fact, I, I would say, Paul, um, even when they became Muslim, that kind of I, that doctrine or that idea was so important to them that I would say they don't necessarily refer to even Islamic scholars, many of the female converts that I interviewed, because they, in a way, they felt empowered. They feel like they have a direct relationship with God now. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't necessarily need that kind of middle person to to be almost like they're a conduit or you know someone who tells them what god wants i guess yeah, yeah, yeah. um so that was interesting um and of course reading the quran i think reading the quran was something that attracted them you know people talked about women talked about how it helps them uh it made sense to them it it helped them i, I would say more emotionally as well they had an emotional connection to the quran um, and its teachings, right. uh, especially at times of their lives when they were going through some challenges. Right. And I must say, the, the ladies I interviewed pretty much were over the age of 30. I didn't really have anyone who was under the age of 30. Interesting. Um, really? Even though it was a random kind mm. of, it kind of makes sense because obviously I was interviewing married women, okay? or women who had been previously married. So it was kind of, maybe it's it's more probable that they'd be slightly older. Um, mm. So Tawheed, okay, and our beliefs, our worldview, our entire worldview, that was very attractive. 
The second thing that was very attractive was the Muslim family. This was quite surprising to me because the number of women who said to me, mm, you know, there was a Muslim family in our neighborhood and they invited me to their house. And it was the first time that I saw a vision of a family that I would love to have myself, you know? Mm -hmm. That was quite, quite uh, revealing. It was quite surprising to me because I don't know, I guess sometimes we assume that everyone is, family is normal, right? For everyone. Um, but many of them had, or some of them had gone through quite difficult experiences in their childhoods, or they came from broken families, um, or they themselves were didn't see any kind of prospect of having a loving family. There was no kind of path in a way, uh, set out for them to know how to go about finding a spouse, settling down. It was all kind of through trial and error. Mm, mm. And I think mm, seeing a Muslim family, seeing a big family especially, uh, and their generosity was very attractive to them. In fact, I, I think for many of them, it was more attractive than any words really. Mm, you know? mm. It was the thing that kind of, it was a vision, I guess, for the future that they could see for themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and also this, this sense of belonging that Muslim families gave them. So right. I don't think we realize how many people out there are lonely, you know, mm -hmm. and kind of don't really have a sense of community anymore. I don't know if it's because of the Thatcher years or or what, you know, the, the whole sort of, there's no such thing as society years. Um, but it seems that people are very fragmented. And when they are welcomed into the bosom of a Muslim family or when they're welcomed by a community, that just has an impact on them, you know? Right. That was a theme that, kept coming up is there anything you want to ask me about that or? no i'm just a very fascinating uh what what you're saying um the things i didn't know about the that the, they tend to be more mature women over, over 30 that i didn't realize um and and just to share the impact of uh the generosity and warmth of families being a, a fundamental you know reason and contributing factor in their in their embracing yeah. Islam. very interesting so so uh, the women who I was interviewing at the time when they, I was interviewing them and when they in, embraced Islam, they were over mm. 30, but their interest in Islam sometimes had been there from teenage, uh -huh. you know, that was very interesting as well. Yeah. So I remember uh, one lady, she, okay. Her story is just quite mind blowing. Actually. Mm -hmm. She grew up in the care system. Mm. Okay. She grew up in the care system in the UK, which basically means she wasn't taken care of, right, <laughs> by anyone. And um, the the reason why she ended up in the care system was, and, and by the way, all the women I interviewed happened to be white or British or- I asked that about the, the ethnic background. So most of them are, did you say all were white, you say? The ones that I interviewed in depth, yes. They were all white, they were British and they were white. Uh, one of them was, I think, Italian and, you know, Italian origin. Wow. Uh, and one was mixed race. But right. 
she would pass as white if you just saw her, you know, because yeah. I interviewed them face to face. Um, that's just in, just a point I wanted to make, like an um, interesting point. Um, so this lady, she, um, when she was five years old, she was knocked over by a car. Okay, she was walking out in the street. She was left to her own devices. Her parents were alcoholics. They had passed out, okay, on the sofa or something. She was walk She was. She just wandered out into the street and knocked over by a car. So picked mm. up by the you know social services and first of all ambulance, right, and then social services taken away from her parents and into the care system. Uh, parents. One of them, both of them passed away during her teenage years. So she's basically became an orphan and she was pregnant by the age of 16, right? She said, you know, nobody was really, nobody knew where I was. I was just doing whatever I wanted. And fast forward to maybe her twenties, I would say, and she's working with a Muslim woman. And in her workplace, this is where this Muslim woman one day invites her to her house for dinner, okay? And she went to her house for dinner and she said, this was the first time she'd ever seen a normal family, mm. like, and been welcomed by one, you know? Um, and I think that was a big turning point for her. Mm. And then after that, you know, she began reading the Quran. Her friend actually gave her a copy of the Quran, uh, taught her some prayers encouraged her to pray and talk to God. She was more of an atheist, I would say. She she said, I, I, I thought, well, I've had such a bad life, you know, why me? <clears throat> you know, the typical kind of yeah, feelings yeah. that people have when they've had a tough life and they've never been, had never felt they'd had a relationship with God. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that was probably one of the most stark uh, reminders i think for me like as an interviewer that there were people who actually had been through a lot mm. you know sometimes people mm. like her and islam actually gave them or at least they were looking for within islam one of the things they were looking for was a new way of life a new way of looking at the world a new way of relating to men you know yeah yeah, um, yeah so but I think the Muslim family, as we just mentioned, was very key in that, you know. Okay. So, Muslim masculinity. This was another one that hmm. is quite surprising. Okay. Surprising. Yeah. So the number of women who said to me, oh, you know, sometimes it was that they had had interactions with Muslim men. Okay. And they just found them to be different to men who they had interacted with, dated, etc. you know? Um, so some of the women, one woman, for example, she was saying that every interaction she'd ever had with a man in her teenage years and growing up, and even now, even now as an adult, she was married, by now, mm. um, she felt men had always tried to take advantage of her. You know, there was always like a transactional relationship where somewhere along the line they would want to 
have an intimate relationship with her. She'd also suffered, she'd, she'd been raped in the past as well. So she's been very much involved in the kind of clubbing and all of that, you know, throughout her younger years. And so again, I think it was quite surprising to me, but it, it was uh, revealing that there are a lot of women out there, I think, who, again, they've only been given one, one worldview, one, one path in life. Like this mm -hmm. is the way, this is the way you find a spouse or somebody to love, you know, you go clubbing, you put yourself out there, right? You allow men to basically have relationships with you without commitment, you know, mm. and somewhere along the way, you'll find the one, right? <laughs> like something like that, right? There's, right? there's this kind of very chaotic, I would say, very chaotic, very um, dangerous, very dangerous um, path for women when it comes to finding a man, finding a spouse. Um, and so I think when they met Muslim men, first of all, they described Muslim men who they felt were very respectful, um, who didn't want anything more than a platonic kind of or a formal relationship, whatever the mm. whatever the relationship was, either through work or um, sometimes just socially. Even I, it didn't strike me that some of the men they met were particularly religious. You know, it was just almost like culturally as well. The way they came across mm. these women had good experiences with them so respectful treatment from muslim men also i think a lot of them were kind of sick and tired of feeling like they were always having to fend for themselves all their lives right. you know so one of the ladies I, I i can i've named them i mean i've changed their names anyway so i can just talk about them by name so tina for example Tina was telling me that all through her life, even with her father, she'd never really been looked after. You know, maybe once she reached the age of 16, you know, she was expected to kind of fend for herself. Mm. Even when she got married, it was all about, you know, she was having to work as well. And so there was this kind of constant pressure, even when she had children, she'd have to go back to work now she's married to a muslim man and in a happy marriage she said you know this is the first time in my life that some somebody's looking after me wow you know like a man is looking after me so again something that i being a person who grew up in a muslim family 100 percent took for granted you know um my dad looked after me, you know, until I got married. And I never had to, I did get, I did get jobs, but they were more for luxuries, really, not for, not for living, right? And then obviously I got married and then, alhamdulillah, my husband provides me. So that, that's usually the trajectory for the average Muslim woman, right? Who's grown up in a Muslim family. Uh, but for these women, that was like a luxury that was like, wow, okay, that's, that's another model, right? Um, they appreciated that. A number of them talked about really yearning for leadership, mm. like a man who would be their leader, the leader of the family. Um, I would say some of them probably idealized Muslim men a little bit, right? Mm. 
Mm. Uh, because some of them then went on to have quite bad experiences as well, you know, to be fair. Uh, sometimes they were taken advantage of. And we, we can go into that a little bit. Um, but overall, they had this desire for a model of masculinity that is kind of, you know, criticized nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. This leadership, the idea that the man is the head of the house, he provides. Uh, I, I asked some of them, you know, when you thought of that idea, didn't it put you off in any way? Like, did you feel like, well, you know, I don't want to be obedient to a husband, for example, you know? And uh, quite a few of them said, well, look, you know, if he's providing for me, and he's the leader, he's, he's leading me. I have no problem being the one who stays at home or the one who, you know, this idea of obedience, you know, to one's husband, husband being the CEO of the house. It was actually appealing to them. They, I think it's because they'd lived through the experience of going half and half, right? And yeah, the, the, alternative, the alternative hadn't been very appealing this kind of extreme individualism where you know males and females just sort of kind of compete it out in clubs and you know as you say very anarchic cha chaotic it, this is and that's freedom that's liberty <laughs> in the west and uh it's not you know, even even within marriage if you think yeah. about it like the idea that you're having to kind of do a double shift you know yeah uh, yeah. You go out to work and then you come home and then you also have to take care of the house. Most of the time it's women doing that, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's been a huge strain on, on many women, hasn't it? That, that this idea that they, they can be a strong, independent woman, but they've also got to fulfill those traditional roles as well when they're back home, you know, particularly having children again, you know, it's it's, it's hugely stressful. Yeah, so, so the idea of a man being in charge mm. actually appealed to them. Right. Um, and they also appreciated the clarity in the roles between mm -hmm. men and women. That was that was very interesting because, yeah. Again, I think we take for granted that, you know, Subhanallah. Like, we shouldn't really, because growing up in the West, you can see it that there isn't clarity. Like, how mm -hmm. do I be a woman? Like, how am I supposed to be a woman? How? Or even what is it? Or, or what is a woman? This is the question. Is yeah. that you know? Matt <laughs> exactly. Say, MC asks everyone, "What is a woman?" And people say, "Well, we don't know." You know. Um, so, so, so we're literally living in the time when yeah. people are asking the question, "What is a woman?" and and are unable to answer it as well. Unable to answer it, yeah, exactly. Or, or yeah. too afraid to answer it in case they get shot down for giving the wrong, the the non work answer. You know, extraordinary. Right. So, I think in that context, people are turning to Islam and uh, right. they just appreciate the clarity. <laughs> simply, simple, simply put, they just appreciate the clarity. Interesting, I just saw, I don't know if you've seen this activist, Posey Parker. She's oh, like yeah. a, what they yeah, call she, a turf, right? Like, yeah, she goes to Speaker's Corner uh, occasionally. Uh, oh, does she? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So trans exclusionary something feminists, are they? I don't know what mm -hmm. the R stands for. But they're supposed to be basically the feminists who are saying, well, we don't want these men who are pretending to be women to yeah. come into yeah. our spaces, right? Our changing rooms and our toilets dressed in, these big blokes dressed in dresses, yeah. Right. I, I saw an interview of hers, and what was interesting is she actually said, I think more and more people are going to turn to Islam. 
<laughs> in the coming years. He's not, he's not a said it out of the blue, and it was really? quite surprising because it wasn't a discussion about Islam. Uh, but she said, I think people, more and more people are going to be turning to religion or turning to Islam because they just want the clarity. They're sick of this, you know, yeah. this chaos. chaos. So that was interesting. Mm. But yeah, so I think the natural desire that women have to have leadership, to have a strong man, you know, I, I like what you said there. You said it was a natural desire, or the fitra, as we might say. But so this is not a, an artificial alien thing. That this fits with our, our natures as uh, male and female in, in the species. This is a very. This flows naturally from the woman's heart and from the man's heart. It's, yeah, know. and 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 women are actually dissatisfied. They they might say they don't want they want to be equal to men, like equal as in the same, but when they get that they're often dissatisfied because they actually want the man to lead right they actually want him to take control of the situation and not be a, a man child right like that's the whole thing and i think especially with my interviewees some of them they had always experienced men who are very needy themselves you know yeah yeah who were never told that they're supposed to step up or that they're meant to kind of be the leader so the idea of having a strong Muslim husband was appealing to them. Right. Uh, the fourth theme that kept coming up was, you know, the, uh, the idea of having a clean life, freedom from intoxicants and all of the kind of, I've called it toxic modernity. So basically all the elements of modern probably city life that are harming people and their relationships right so it wasn't just the the lady that i mentioned she wasn't the only one who grew up with parents who are alcoholics actually there were quite a few of them that was interesting because i don't think we realize how much alcohol blights people's lives you know and how traumatized a lot of young people are having grown up with parents who couldn't control their alcohol, you know. In fact, when I was thinking about it and hearing their stories, I was thinking, I can't believe this is legal. Like, how can it be legal to look after a child and be drunk, you know? <laughs> like, mm -hmm. because literally their parents would either become violent or neglectful, mm -hmm. you know. In, in some way they would harm their children so the, the children would grow up avoiding their parents one of the ladies said she would often go hungry um as a teenager and it wasn't only because she started living with her sister who was quite wealthy and generous her half sister that she actually you know appreciated things like being able to eat regularly and things like that um those are maybe some of the more extreme examples, but I think the idea of that you can actually live without alcohol, that you could actually, you know. Yeah, I mean, I think many people in the West find that very hard to understand, to concept conceptualize yeah. as a, a reality. And uh, I mean, as someone myself who, who uh, used to drink alcohol uh, before uh, um, I embraced Islam, I wasn't mm. a heavy drinker, but you know, it, it was difficult to understand how one could live without alcohol. <laughs> and um, 
but it can be done and that was one of the most um extraordinary um, uh, realizations that uh living a completely alcohol-free life is not only possible it's very normal and i i simply don't miss alcohol it simply doesn't figure in my consciousness at all and you know you don't need to have alcohol to have fun with people or whatever it's, it's just mm. kind of a strange idea you need to ingest this drug this toxic thing to actually have fun and you don't there's a there's a natural high that's the alternative to the drug alcohol is the natural high one gets through through living you know and so yeah it's, it's perfectly normal to live without um alcohol actually and millions and millions of people do it like what in your previous life would you say that alcoholism was something you saw a lot like around you yeah i i i've still got friends people i know of uh mainly in france of all places but um who who yeah, do abuse alcohol and uh, and what was it's disturbing that they do but also the rationalizations they use they they, they you know they, they will come out with things. oh it's just a little little, a little tip all before dinner and then lunch and but you can see it's 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 a drug they they're completely slavishly dependent on and it, it's they have they're, they're heavily indoctrinated mentally i mean not just biologically with the with the alcohol and th that's quite shocking actually the, the amount of self rationalization that people have when they consume too much alcohol mm. absolutely so i think you know this idea that they could have even all the other things like promiscuity clubbing almost like this cycle of having a partner and then leaving them and then have finding another partner and then this sort of i would say complicated dance that they would have to constantly be part of you know mm, mm. um was i think very tiring as well for yeah. many women um yeah and the mo and modern models of womanhood so what i mean by that is mm. everything they've been taught and i i feel like having grown up with in a girl's school with a with girls you know non-muslim girls i feel like a lot of the time the guidelines for how to live for them were just not given to them not by parents anyway it was literally taught to them by the media you know right. everyone right. was watching friends and uh, i don't know sex in the city and i don't know what was on tv at the time watching different pop stars and reading teenage magazines and it, it kind of makes sense to me that the only model for womanhood that a lot of girls have is one that is basically manufactured by the media and various industries that are trying to manipulate them mm -hmm. you know so yeah this kind of i wasn't that surprised about mm. them eventually being sick of this in a modern way of life that was really not giving them much satisfaction much contentment uh, mm. i think because again like i had friends when i was growing up when i got married as a teenager i, I got married when i was 19. i remember some of my friends would ask me like how do you get married when you were that young like how does it even how do you even find somebody you know like they didn't have any pathway right. to know like how do I how am I supposed to settle down how am I supposed to do this except to go clubbing to 
have relationships at university, um, allow people to basically have relationships with them, whether they really like them or not, but just almost like as a rite of passage. And mm. eventually they'd stumble upon somebody who they liked. Now, that had been sold to them as freedom, right? Or as some kind of almost like adventure. But it wasn't, I think, satisfying. It's not satisfying to most women. It's right. something that leaves them emotionally drained and empty and um, exploited, you know? So this aspect doesn't surprise me. I feel like girls, especially in the UK, are groomed into a particular lifestyle because I've seen the grooming myself you know the school does part of the grooming as well because the school is first of all giving them you know in my school they were allowed to go and get um, contraception whenever they wanted without any with their without their parents knowing you know mm. Mm. Um, when we had those kind of sex education type classes the teachers never talked about abstinence as even an option. You know, the idea of, yeah, maybe you, you don't want to do this. You know, maybe you could just wait. Um, that wasn't even an option. It was just like, well, we know you're going to do this. You know, we know you're going to have relationships anyway. So since you are, we better teach you about STDs and <laughs> contraception, right? I mean, that that was it. And... I think at that, especially growing up, uh, you know, Britain was the uh, place that had the highest number of teen pregnancies in Europe wow. in the 90s. So all the schools were also trying to like prevent this, uh, but their way of preventing it because they don't have a moral code that they could present mm. to people or say, you know, actually this is gonna be harmful to you. And because popular culture was, this is after the 60s and 70s, so popular culture is kind of pushing girls and women towards promiscuity, right? After the sexual revolution, you're supposed to be empowered and free. I think the only thing they could do is damage control, which is, you know, right. STDs. Let's teach them about STDs and, mm, you know, contraception, basically. So, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. And the fifth... The fifth area, I think that, now this one did surprise me, was mm. that actually many of the women said they, they secretly admired Muslim women. So when they saw Muslim women in their lives, in their everyday lives, they, they actually saw a dignity. They saw, so I'll give you one example. One lady was telling me, she went to school with Muslims, right? So I think this is also a thing now, obviously, a lot of people have grown up with Muslims mm -hmm. in there as their peers. Yeah. And she said, I always, it always used to strike me that the Muslim girls seemed so like looked after, you know, like they had, they had a father, they had, so, th mm. so this lady, she, she didn't, she grew up without a father, you know, she said they had, they had a father, they had order in their lives. I think that theme of chaos actually keeps coming up, chaos and order, um, seeing Islam as the order. Um, and they kind of, although they didn't really necessarily like the hijab, some of them, you know, the idea of covering, it would seemed like suppressive or 
repressive, um, they at least admired in the girls that they didn't have the chaotic lives that they did, mm. you know? And I think that admiration stayed with some of them from their mm. school days. Mm. Mm. Uh, one of the ladies said she, she'd lived, so she grew up in Birmingham, a big Muslim community there. Yep. And because of her exposure to Muslim women there, she just had a natural admiration for the way Muslim women dressed, the way they conducted themselves. So that was interesting. Um, some of them even said that they practiced wearing the hijab before they became Muslim. They would just interesting. Mm. <laughs> stand in front of the mirror and practice. Yeah. They liked the idea of being covered uh, they didn't like the idea of constantly being exposed, feeling like you have to always perform, you know? Mm, mm, mm. <clears throat> Every time you go out, you have to, there's a certain number of things a woman has to do in order to kind of be accepted. Otherwise, she'll be treated as less than, right? She'll lose her status as a woman. Um, and so they liked the idea of not being part of that game anymore. Thing. No, it makes an awful lot of sense. Yeah, um, I was very surprised at the number of um, women who said that either, a, so some of them were teachers, quite a few of them were teachers, teachers or lecturers, they had been in the past. Um, and quite a few of them said, well, you know, it was actually a student at school, even the child at school who who in, who would always share things about Islam with me and eventually invited, you know, his parents, the, the child's parents invited me to their house or my student at university gave me a copy of the Quran. Mm. Um, yeah, one lady was a, she taught English as a foreign language, uh, English for students of other languages, ESOL, right, teacher. And she said that, it was women in her class who, as a gift, gave her a copy of the Qur'an. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I think the Qur'an is definitely number one, you know. The Qur'an and Tawheed and the more they learnt about the teachings of Islam. <coughs> but all of these other elements, so all of these other elements, I think are very important. We're very important in, I think, attracting them to Islam in the first place. Mm -hmm. And these are all excellent reasons, actually, because they touch the spiritual, the Tawhid, the Quran, they touch the social, they touch what it means to be a woman, um, it, they touch the, the toxic effects of modernity, Western modernity, and yep. so on. These, these are actually very rational uh, mm. and, and even wise reasons. They're, 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 they are full of wisdom, um, uh, uh, and so th th these are very positive I think. Um, and so in that sense, it's not surprising uh, that so many women are attracted to Islam. But what, what is sad is that um, many women and many men are, uh, as well don't know the truth about Islam. But that's another subject, of course. But, um, but, but when they do discover the truth about Islam, then these things become quite real. Absolutely. I think what, what it also helps us to realise, those of us who are involved in da'wah or who want to share the message with people, mm is actually that although Tawheed, the Quran, the Islamic teachings is a very important part of that, it's by no means the only 
part, you know. All of these other, what you could call soft skills, like things like um, inviting people to your house, you know, like making them feel welcome. Um, not assuming, so, so with number five, the admiration for hijab and Muslim women, what I got from that was actually that sometimes us as Muslim women in the West, we feel, we feel like people are looking down on us, you know, or, or constantly seeing us as weirdos and, you know, um always problems i mean you see this in france at the moment where, where women's dress has again been problematized and stigmatized and targeted by the state at the highest level um i mean i i, I saw macron on video yesterday in french saying you know we, we will we will assign officials to the schools uh next week and we will ensure that no if this will it will no woman will be allowed to come in dressed as she was that we will we will make it happen now this is like the president of the french republic <laughs> who is concerned on television to explicitly target muslim women i mean what a huge thing to do it's like as if the yeah. king of england decided went out of his way to, to talk about a rather small percentage of the population and specifically target them um, it, it's very victimizing. It's, it's very um, intrusive uh, uh, and almost persecutory. It, it, the, the, uh, to to that, that such the state should take such a strong interest in uh, the, the way that when women dress modestly, and this is somehow contrary, and it, it is made to seem to be contrary to the values of French society. In other words, so there is a political dimension, then there is the implication that Muslims are not really French. Uh, as well yeah. so it, it triggers all sorts of appalling kind of historic memories of French occupation of Algeria and uh, and and so on it, it, it's still the same DNA I'm trying to say running through the French state nothing really has changed many would argue I think absolutely and and I, I thought it was quite ridiculous actually there was a, a I don't know I think a French minister or some kind of yeah. advocate for this abaya ban as they call it yeah um, on Al Jazeera, and he was saying that the Muslim lady was saying to him, "Well, the abaya is not strictly speaking a religious garment; it's you know, it can be a cultural garment as well, right? It's a cultural garment." And he said, "Well, you know, the fact is that most nowadays the people who wear it are the Muslims, and usually the religious Muslims. Okay, so and that's why it's a problem." And I was thinking, okay, so. So if Muslims suddenly adopt flowery dresses, right, as as our thing, you know, as our thing that all Muslim women will wear, you know, are you going to ban that because now it's mm. identified with Muslims so much? I mean, mm. it's amazing how that, that particular individual, uh, mm. uh, I his name actually, uh, who's the like the Secretary of State for Education in France. I looked him up on, on, on Wikipedia because he's a very young guy, actually, at least to my eyes. And um, he, he describes himself. He, he is. He describes himself as gay. Uh, he, he says he is Jewish um, and living with his his partner and so on. So we have a gay Jewish guy who is. Uh, issuing instructions about how Muslim women should wear their clothes, and I, I found that really quite interesting. To put it more, more strongly than that, that, that kind yeah. of dynamic, and this is public. You know, this is the public dynamic. You know, this is what he is. He represents. It's kind of a the, the Jewish gay take. You know, I'm not saying that this is a Jewish gay take, but that there is that also that dynamic going on. That that him representing that is um, disapproving of, of Muslim women and how they dress. And it's. 
it, it, it leaves a bad odor about the whole thing i think but of course it the the laws there also discriminate against jews orthodox jews and exactly and, and catholic, traditional catholics it, but they're, they're these are small, very small numbers of people. You know, exactly. That's, yeah, I think that's the thing. And, and the real animus, because the church has been defeated in France since the French mm. Revolution, of course. The, the, the real, the, the Muslims are the next target. You know, the, the, the state. They're, don't, they're the actually, only religion that they see. They, they, they want them to to bow down quite openly to the French state and 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 deny huge tracts of their religion if it's perceived to be consistent with. Uh, uh, sec militant secularism. There's a very militant, aggressive form of of laicite secularism in France, and and like Catholics, Muslims must uh, submit quite literally submit. It's an interesting word, Muslim. The word Muslim means one who submits, but Muslims are expected to yeah. submit to Macron, uh, this this guy, uh, and the state as a matter of public state policy it's quite extraordinary um that this how do you think that's going to play out by the way paul like your experience because you've lived in france right or you do live yeah, in france I, I how do, do you yeah. think this is going to play out are they i can't see them islam well, is never gonna or muslims are never gonna acquiesce in that way like, I, I think what 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 really disturbed me and it is i still find it hard to grasp is that it's not a left-right thing in, in britain you could say oh well the right are the most islamophobic and hostile mm -hmm. and the left or kind of progressive. I mean, you could say that, whether that is really the case. In France, the left and the right are agreed that secularism, militant secularism, is a really, really good thing. Um, so you get Islamophobia on the left as well as the right. Not all, not there are some exceptions on the left, but uh, but but mostly secularism is uh, is the agreed, you know, is the value of the French Republic. Um, I, I'm quite pessimistic, uh, and I think things were, and not just about France, it's about Europe as a whole. We're looking at things happening in Germany with uh, the Alternative for Germany party, uh, which is very Islamophobic, now gaining second biggest party in Germany. What happening in Finland and Sweden and Denmark and blah blah blah. So I, I think things are going to get worse. But Muslim French Muslims, if they're aware they're part of a bigger bigger Ummah. Uh, the, the nation of Muslims, I think that will make the difference. Um, uh, unlike the Jews, say, in the 30s, who were very vulnerable, they didn't, you know, they, they, they were picked off by Germany um, and others, France. Uh, Muslims today are far more numerous and, and we're part of a much bigger um, movement. And I think that will, make, hopefully, that will make a difference in some way. But I, I don't know. I am pessimistic. Um, yeah, so I think the only thing that makes me optimistic is things aren't always as they seem, mm. apparently. So I, I think like after 9-11, so many of us thought, it just felt like Muslims are constantly in the news. The veil was always in the news. There was, in the, in Britain as well. And Britain is not yeah. like France, you know, it's, it's different um, in, in the sense that I don't think British people have that same level of hatred for religion or rejection they don't they're not as kind of anti-religion being visible um and because muslims in britain are seen as quite a successful community you know i don't think mm -hmm. they're characterized as being in the ghettos and things like that the, the way the muslims in france sometimes are yeah. um but i think one of the things that we realized after 9-11 and all of the persecution, yes, a lot of people had to go through and did go through a lot of persecution. You know, think of Guantanamo Bay, the anti-terror laws and 
how much people were persecuted under those, etc. But I feel like a lesson that I learned from that whole period is if we stay true to our principles and we keep going, you know, if we keep going in terms of da'wah, in terms of the community involvement and the, I feel like Muslims really took the time to start engaging more, you know, especially mosques, getting more involved um, and staying the course, like not compromising. If we keep doing that, the end result will be that Islam is irresistible. Mm. I, I really think that because almost every single person I interviewed and the questionnaire, the wider questionnaire I did, almost all of them converted after 9-11, mm. right? And 9-11 was often the catalyst that kind of drew them to even looking into Islam in the first place. So mm. something that seems like it was a, such a terrible disaster, it, it was a terrible disaster, but what I mean is for Muslims as well, like in terms of the way it makes Islam look, you know, etc. And that now people are never going to look into Islam, etc. Mm -hmm. I think it's ended up having the reverse effect. Mm -hmm. You know, it actually became the the reason why people googled Islam in the first place. Mm -hmm. The reason why people said, "All right, let me read this book. <coughs> let me read the Quran." Um, and similarly, I think what's going to happen in France, I might be naive or overly optimistic, is and in Europe, I think as as Europe's non-Muslim population uh, is in decline, you know, and it is, you know, in terms of like the number of children the average European has, uh, non-Muslim compared to Muslim. And what effect that's going to have on economies, I think excluding Muslims is just going to be an impossibility for Europeans over time. Now, I don't know if that means that initially there's going to be a, a huge backlash, you know. Uh, we might have some difficult days ahead, you know, because yeah. I, I do think a lot of the time the politicians, they jump onto Muslims as a convenient topic to draw attention away from other things, right, that are in the news, mm -hmm. uh, a scapegoat, something that a populist topic that everyone can have a strong view on, you know. Um, but I think over time, the more Muslims engage, the more of a positive community we are, the average person will say, no, I know a Muslim. They're not like that. You know, mm. the Muslims in my community, they're the most helpful. They're the ones who do the, the, the care the most. Right. Uh, so I think our job is to have sabr. And when you look at the meaning of sabr, People think it means be patient and just kind of like sit still and not do anything. But actually, sabr is a very active word. It means be steadfast, hold on and keep going. You know, yeah. so one one explanation for sabr, as the scholars give, is that it means continuing to obey Allah, continuing mm. to do the things that Allah commanded and continuing to stay away from what Allah forbade. Mm -hmm. So if we continue on that, I think, as Allah says in Surah Al-Asr, you know, 
the whole of mankind is at loss, except those mm. who believe, mm. who work mm. righteous deeds, who basically enjoin the good and forbid the evil. Right? Mm. They they talk, speak the truth and they they give other people exhortation to be upon the truth. And they have sabr, and they encourage others to have sabr. I mean, those those are literally the people who Allah says are not the losers. So mm. I think if we keep, stay our course, if the Muslims in France and all over Europe, if we become clever and, and just find ways of um, resisting, resisting this kind of constant attempt to wear away at our commitment, and our conviction, if we just keep going, if we keep promoting family values, uh, in the end, the Muslim population is going to be an irresistible part of every single European country. Mm. Yep, that's very optimistic, inshallah. <laughs> the alternative is not worth... It's, not, it's not worth thinking about, yeah. <laughs> no, exactly, <laughs> yes. Mm. But I do think Muslims have to also be willing to move, you know, if they have to. You know. Yeah, Hijra is, is, a, is a very real, uh, a live option. I know many people are thinking about it, not necessarily doing it, but we have to always be aware of that option, I think. But the and Hijra, of... doesn't, Hijra doesn't always have to be, you know, from, especially in our times, from the west to the east, you know, or from... As Americans are telling me, you, know, you could do Hijra internally in the States from, from say, a, a state that's very hostile or, or very liberal or, you know, putting values down on your children. So you can move to a much more traditional conservative area. And, and Muslims do. They, they, some, some Muslims move, say, from San Francisco to Texas or something. I, I often, mm. often hear about that route or route, as they say. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's Hijra, but it's internal. So you're right, because America is such a huge continent you can do that where well, england's a bit different i'm not sure where we go what the, the lake district or the hebrides or uh but i think london and the major cities for example are you know being a muslim is very normal in the major cities in the uk yeah. i think in london so, it is, yeah. and yeah, birmingham, in birmingham as well huge um, huge population of muslims in birmingham yeah manchester etc yeah no indeed so i think yeah less of an issue but france is difficult because it's the, the, the state is so total and authoritarian and it it reaches every corner of france i i, I don't really think there's much of a yeah this france is different anyway that's france what's so special about hero bread soft fluffy and delicious breads buns and tortillas these ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar fewer calories and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health shop now at hero.co